0: Glorious covenant with him. I pray that would not be merely uh, doctrine, but it would be our life as well. For you're the same God you were for him that you are for us. We pray this as those who are sons of Abraham by faith, heirs with Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So we're coming here in our, our study of covenant theology to the covenant with Abraham. This is the paradigm. This is often used, and we use it this is the paradigm for every other covenant in many ways every other part of uh of, of of the covenant of uh of of grace we've been talking about that and just by way of uh, review let me give you a quote here from uh, ed clowney you know he 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 died I, I had the privilege of being in the same church as ed clowney for a couple of weeks when i was in houston and he was in houston um he was old then um, but uh he, he says this, the Bible has a storyline. It traces an unfolding drama. The story follows the history of Israel. It doesn't start there. The narrative doesn't pay tribute to Israel. It reg- regularly condemns Israel and justifies God's worst, most severe judgments. The story's God's story. It describes His work to rescue rebels from their folly, guilt, and ruin. If there's one thing that we must know, It is this. The Bible is one story. It's one book. It's one story. It's one book. It is a unified, glorious picture. That's why we've talked about this covenant of grace as one grand sweep, one great arrow through history. And along the way, we saw it last week a little bit with Noah. We'll see it today with Abraham. We'll look at Moses David, and then, of course, Christ, ultimately. But the problem is, I was trained. I remember reading when I was about six or seven years old that little kid's story Bible. It had the pictures in it. I think I saw a copy of it at a used bookstore about a year ago or so, and I was like, oh, nostalgia. Um, But what what did it present the Bible as? What did did it present the New Testament and the Old Testament as? A collection of stories. And so I read about Noah, I read about Abraham, and Moses, and David, and they were just little dots, disconnected. And for most of us, that's, that's kind of how we, we are trained and prepped to read the Bible as disconnected dots that may or may not be on the same line. Cool stories, interesting stories. No real point beyond moral values. Be like Abraham in this situation, don't be like him in this situation, look at Moses, look at David, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. However, when you begin to understand covenant theology, and one of the reasons why we do it, or we look at it, is to see the Bible is a grand and glorious story. That first and foremost, the Bible is a dramatic depiction of God's deliverance. I hope that's one way of encouraging you as we come to kind of look at this particular instance with Abraham in the storyline of the Bible. Now, <clears throat> every week I, want, I do want to kind of recap a little bit and push the boundary a little bit of what we're uh, supposed to be covering in this class on the Covenant of Grace. So let me start here by giving you a definition. You have it there in your outline. A definition from the old reform standby, Louis Burkoff. He, he calls it this. He says, this is the Covenant of Grace, that gracious agreement between the offended God and the offending but elect sinner in which God promises salvation through faith in Christ and the sinner accepts this believingly, promising a life of faith and obedience. Every covenant we've talked about has two parties. It has, therefore, an agreement. Now this agreement, at least as Burkhoff defines it, includes the last statement, the sinner accepts this agreement and promises a life of faith and obedience, which leads to the question we'll open with. You have it right there. In God's dealing with Abraham, Moses, David, us, in God's covenant relationship with his people, is this covenant of grace, is it conditional or is it unconditional? Let me uh, outline what those words mean. Does God set conditions on his favor? Does God set conditions, or does God not set conditions on his favor? This is a very this is a tricky question, so don't be surprised if you're not at first uh, getting it. But let me uh, open it up for your feedback, your thoughts. Is the covenant of grace, is God's relationship with us as Christians, is it condition-based or is it not condition-based? Are there no conditions? That's fair. Yeah. Are there conditions attached? Okay. I see Greg saying no conditions, unconditional. Okay. Why is that, Greg? The God chose to do it, and basically based on the fact that we were failures we couldn't do, even when he presented the perfect representative for us in failure. So that's one vote for no conditions, right? We couldn't do anything. God God chose us. Okay. Very good. Okay. So even any... Let me ask a question. How many of us have tried to do it that way? <laughs> sure. All of us. Do All of us. Yeah. And part of us, every one of us, somewhere in us that, that we're earning self-esteem, but we're not. Great. Taylor? Believing in our condition. Oh, that's an interesting point. I yeah. yeah, Very good. This is great. Very good. Like we're believing and so something is happening. But in reality, God is one that's someone who pushes in that direction to begin with. Yeah, nothing. So he believes for us? Yeah. But the statement does say the sinner accepts. Very good, Bob. So that would appear to be I, struggle if you disagree with his word exactly. <coughs> Okay. And the biblical word is received. Okay, and how do we receive that? Sola's is that that's, that's not quite the sola that we're looking at by faith alone, through grace alone. Yeah. Wouldn't everybody go to heaven? And hmm. Very good. I, I'm glad. So y'all you, you, you begin to see that the issue here it's a complicated question, and I think I think we I think once uh let me let me kind of help the tension here. I think everybody's covered the points that I was going to cover. You've all hit on something that's relevant. On the one hand. Glory, Greg. Absolutely correct. We cannot earn salvation. Right? So, in this sense, the covenant of grace is unconditional. We cannot. There is zero way. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We can contribute nothing in ourselves. Absolutely. And yet, and yet, let me quote uh, Kevin DeYoung here. He says this, <clears throat> Many Reformed Christians have objected to the word conditioned being used in connection with the covenant of grace, but Burkoff argues this was largely due to a reaction against Arminianism, that old bugbear, which employed—that's me, not him—which uh, employed the word condition in an unscriptural sense and therefore a failure to discriminate properly. Here's, here's the key thing that the uh, young and I think um, we need to grapple with. This why I bring it up. He says we need to distinguish between here's the key distinction. Meritorious conditions and necessary conditions. Right? So we can't earn it, right? So no meritorious conditions. Zero, zip, zilch. However, there are necessary conditions. This is kind of what Bob and Taylor were 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 hinting at. Yeah, go ahead. All over my heart, completely all over my heart. And finally she realized she had nothing else to do. She knew I was going to get her. She was sitting the the floor and just cry and wait for me to pick her up. Like when I came to Christ, that's what I was I there wasn't there wasn't some accept there was accept with the, with the choice that I was made and it really wasn't mine to make. I knew that I had been gotten right. I had Right. Yeah. Absolutely Absolutely, and I think that's that's what we should be able to say, as every single Christian, right? There's 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 no other right. We have to accept, we have to receive it, whatever verb you use. Our hands are simply out. We have nothing else. We have nothing to give. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's that's why when our when we talk about the covenant of grace and salvation, we receive it with this empty hand. We have, we have nowhere else to turn to. I, I looked at the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, not the hills. You know, the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, <clears throat> DeYoung mentions this. Let me just continue. If I were to say, you need a ticket to enter Truist Park to watch a Braves game, the ticket would be a condition. You can't enter without the ticket. But that does not tell you how you get a ticket. Maybe you have to work hard and save your money. That would be a meritorious condition. But perhaps the ticket was given to you as a gift, in which case it will be necessary, but not a condition you have met by your earning or deserving. In the same way, faith is a necessary condition for truly possessing the blessings of the covenant, but it's not a meritorious condition. Right? And I think that's a very key... That a lot of folks... You can even tell right now in these last five minutes. There's a lot of... Confusion. That's a challenging question. And I'm not going to solve it in these five minutes because it's it's just an opening teaser, an appetizer for our, our discussion. We're going to look at it in more detail down the road. But I do want to at least trick you to be thinking about the fact that, yes, there are no meritorious conditions. Or if there are, we discussed it two weeks ago, I think, Christ, the second Adam, has fulfilled them. He has done all things necessary. He has obeyed in our place. and yet. What does our catechism say? All that I must do is receive this gift. Right? I have to receive the gift. So whether you call it accepting or receiving, whatever word you want to put in there, faith is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. Isn't that what Paul says? Ephesians chapter 2. So that no one can boast. Faith is required; it's a condition, but it's not a condition that you do. I mean, in that sense, Florida, to use your uh, lovely cat example, which, of course, you know, I enjoy. Um, the cat cried out in the very end. We cry out, "Help my unbelief!" Right? And where does that cry come from? For we're not cats, right? For the cat, it came from just the the, the instinct, the realization. Um, the lack of space to go to. For us, it comes from that, but it, it comes from crying out, Lord, help. We believe. Others don't believe, right? And that's, that's Bob's point. right? If there are no conditions in the covenant of grace, then what you might end up with is uh, ultimately a, a tendency towards universalism. So, I would love to hear your comments and your feedback and your pushback. Think on it. Think on it. And uh, talk to me next week. Talk to me right now, afterwards, brother. And uh, we'll go ahead and get into Abraham, if that's okay. I'll take the the prerogative of the teacher and move on, uh, having thrown a little grenade into your midst um, and stirred the pot a little bit. So we come to Abraham. Let me invite you to turn to uh, chapter 12 of Genesis. We'll be in Genesis, as you may imagine. Uh, We were there last week with Noah. We're, We're still there chapter 12 of Genesis. We covered this recently, but um, nonetheless, still want to make a few points. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Uh, I'll read through verse 3. This is the classic, the opening, uh, official, formal declaration of the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace, of course, began technically, I think Greg pointed out last week, it begins all the way in the garden In Genesis 3.15, that was what you might call the informal beginning. The first blush. Here with Abraham, you get the formal beginning of the covenant of grace. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you'll see here that there are three promises of blessing. I've mentioned them in your outline. They're the same ones, similar, at least, to what we had in the garden. You recall that God, in the covenant of works, laid out the command to be fruitful and multiply. That was the demand. Adam, go fill the earth. Now, what what does God say? I will make you fill the earth, basically. I will make of you, verse 2, a great nation. I will bless you, and I'll make your name great. So what we have here is this, uh, this first promise of people fulfilling that call in the garden. Second, place. Well, this really comes first in, the, in, the, uh, in, in verse 1. He says, go from your country, your kindred, to your father's, in your father's house, to the land that I will show you. You recall, of course, in Eden, there was a garden of Eden. That was the place. It was paradise, and yet now God is calling Ab- Abram, Abraham to a different place. And look at that. He promises, I will show you the land. I will bring you there. And then third, I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. Implicit here is the promise that God will be with him. How can God bless if he's not with? So the implication is the presence of God. Clear on that? that? That's not terribly challenging to see. That's kind of classic. Any questions on any of that? Now, let's look and see what this actually means. Let's look first at the, um, the, the land promise. We see here, verse 1, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will bring you there. I will bless you. Who's the subject in all of this? God. I. 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 Over and over again, God calls Abraham unilaterally. He He says this is not a discussion between equals. This is not a joint discussion. I will do this. I will make. I will bless. I will curse. God speaks and it will pass. It's notable that... This comes on the, 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 uh, the backdrop of, of uh, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is man's attempt, humanity's attempt to do all these things. Humanity attempts to make a great people. They're already together in one people. They want to make a great place, a great temple, a great building, the Tower of Babel. And they want to be with God. They want to be in God's presence. They want to build a tower up to the heavens to basically assault heaven and take it from God. Kind of like the uh, some of the humans might do on Mount time. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what we have here from the get-go in this covenant of grace is a new beginning. God will do from Abram what Nimrod can never do. And here we have a big promise. God promises a big land Well, no, the land is, uh, at this time, a demilitarized zone. It's kind of the the borderland between Egypt and Babylon, Egypt and Mesopotamia. You don't want to go and live there. But nonetheless, God says, it's my land. Abram, you know, if Abram could ask something of God without knowing any of this, I mean, think about the, the, the prayers you pray to God. What are the kind of prayers you pray? If they're like the prayers I pray, they're small prayers. God, help me with this issue. Help me make some money. Help me fix my little rash on my toe. Help me take care of my family needs. We pray small prayers. And Abram, I, I, I will bet you that uh, given the choice, he would have asked for 40 acres and a mule. He would have asked for a little bit of land. But God gives him a humongous, a an entire country, far more land than he would have needed himself. You see, one of the very basic points about the covenant of grace is that it's better than what you what you expect. The covenant of grace, when God saves you, and this is a picture we'll see of salvation, of course, but when God saves you, he saves you bigly. He saves you greatly. That's not a technical term. He he saves you with mighty salvation. He saves you far better than you would save yourself. He does things to you and for you that we can't even imagine. And so the question is, are we choosing the easy options because we are not trusting in God, the same kind of God that Abram had? The challenge, friends, is that, yes, God calls us to be faithful in small things. Absolutely. But not just in small things. Sometimes that's a setup for a big thing. Are we afraid to hope for more? Are we afraid to hope as God's people for more? Do we expect and hope and pray? I think most particularly we pray for God to do great things in our midst, in our lives, in our homes. Or are we content just to kind of survive? Too often, we don't expect God to do dramatic things. But what does he do here? He does something dramatic. He does something dramatic. Um, now, as, as a side note, I'll, I'll skip over these, uh, the other two in a, and we'll return to them. Thus far, the place. As a side note, I want you to see how immediately the promise of the land is attacked. Chapter 13. Chapter 14, immediately what occurs right after the great promise is the great attack, the great attack of the evil one, right? There is an alternative covenant out there. You recall we've been mentioning it, right? There's the covenant of works. There's the covenant that says you must earn this. You must achieve it. You must do it. And Satan wants to destroy Abraham. And sin wants to destroy him. And that's why he is faced immediately with this choice with his brother Lot. Do I choose the good land, the green land? Because that's what God's gonna supposed to give me, or do I not choose that? He could have grasped at the promise of the land, but he allows Lot to choose first. We looked about we looked at this, of course, and when we were in preaching through it. But Lot chooses by sight, not by faith. He trusts in what his own eyes tell him. And after all, verse 7 of chapter 13 tells us that the enemies were there, the Canaanites, the paradise, They were dwelling in the land. They were enemies of God. But Abraham settles in the land of Canaan. He settles right among the enemies. That is, he, he settles right where the fire is hottest. He doesn't flee from the trial, the challenge. And of course, in chapter 14, we have that, that glorious depiction of Abraham's rescue of his brother Lot, which I can't get into at this time. The point is that um, immediately, when God's, whenever you are saved, whenever God delivers His people, what happens? There's blowback. There's pushback. There's an attempt by Satan to get us off course. He did it to Christ. Have you not noticed here? That the temptation narrative in Luke 4 comes right after the baptism of Christ. One of the peak moments in the life of Christ. The mission of Christ is formally, openly declared. And then what happens? Bam! Attacks. Haven't you noticed that? That when you have your great Christian moments, you know, whether you're 24 years old with a cat or whether you're 80 years old, it doesn't matter. Have, have you not noticed that right after that typically comes particular trial? It's not a rule, I'm not saying it's a rule, but generally, it, yeah, it's a problem. It, 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 it often happens. Now, that was a side note, just to point out that the covenant of grace is under attack. Let me get return here to our original text, Genesis 12. <clears throat> we looked at the, uh, the land. Now let's look at the offspring. Let me read here. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Flip over to chapter 15. God comes three times to Abraham. You know this. I'll just repeat it for us, of course. 12, 15, 17. Three times God reaffirms and affirms His covenant. Chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord, verse 1, came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your rewards will be very great. And what's Abram's concern? Verse 2. I don't have kids. He He doubts. He doubts that God's promise can actually come through. He's concerned not about stuff. This is right after chapter 14. Abram has all the stuff. He has all the goodies. He has all the things. He has all the money. He is secure earthly, but he's not secure when it comes to God's promise. And then what does God do? This is this classic, this glorious picture of of the covenant of grace. This is why this, this chapter is the paradigm of uh, of the covenant of grace it's Archie Sproul as you may know his favorite his favorite bible passage his favorite verse is in this chapter <clears throat> and we'll look at it in a second he says look if i die now uh, my servant will inherit you haven't given me a kid you haven't you have fulfilled your word and and god says verse 4 god reaffirms the promise god takes him outside and he doesn't discipline him for doubting notice this see how kind god is he does not discipline Abram for doubting, but he says, The word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, said, Look to heaven, number the stars, so shall your offspring be. Now, what is Abram's response? Verse 6. What does he do? He believes. He has faith. Not a meritorious condition, but a necessary condition. Right? He says he believed the Lord. This is this classic statement that Paul quotes over and over again. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And then, verse 7, Abram doubts again. He doubts the land promise. So he doubted the kid promise, the people promise. Now he doubts the place promise. He says, verse 8, O oh Lord, how shall I know that I should possess it? And then God answers in this weird way. I know many of y'all know this, but but I think it's very important that we go through it nonetheless. God answers in this strange ceremony that makes total sense to Abram, but very little sense to us. He answers in a classic uh, diplomatic treaty format. In Genesis 15, he says, Abram, bring me a heifer, three years old, female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a dove, young pigeons. Verse 19, he brought them all. He cut them in half. He laid each half over against the other. Not the birds, they're too small. And Abram drove away the birds of prey. And then verse 12, look there. When well, the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. Abraham is not contributing anything here. He's not doing anything. And what, uh, what does the Lord do? He repeats the promise. Verse 13, Know for certain, that is, don't doubt anything. Know for double-dog sure that your offspring will be strangers in a land that's not theirs. They'll be afflicted for a hundred years, but I'll bring judgment. And they'll come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. In other words, he gives a preview of the Exodus. He gives a preview of history. And then what does he do? So, He sets up this kind of treaty format. He declares what will happen. He sets the terms of the covenant agreement. And then, this is standard in diplomatic treaties of those days, two parties. And then, each party goes through and promises they will fulfill the treaty. They'll fulfill the covenant. They'll fulfill the pact. And if they don't fulfill, they will have a curse brought down on them. This is why Abram cuts up in bloody guts the cow, the goat, the animals. He lays them kind of like a a deadly gauntlet. This is the way it was done back in those days. We have records of the Aetherian king making this kind of agreement with one of his vassal states. He said, all right, let's get together. You know, these days we sign a contract in those days to make sure you didn't default, you didn't uh, welch on on your agreements. What they would do is they would cut up animals and they would say, if I don't, if I don't follow the law, if I don't follow this, co- this covenant, may I be cut up like that animal. It was a picture of what would happen to them. You are free to gut me and skewer me and cut me in two if I don't keep my words. I think actually we would have far fewer foreign policy issues if that's the way we did things. But uh, we don't. we we sign we with pen and paper. Now, notice what happens. Verse seventeen. This is Archie uh, Sproul's third verse. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. What is this? Y'all, some of y'all know this. What's happening here? God is ratifying the covenant. Perfectly right, God. In the picture of a smoking firepot and a flaming torch, as if they're kind of levitating in air, you might say, they pass between the pieces, a symbol of God's holiness, a symbol of God himself. He is saying, if I don't fulfill my side of the covenant, may I be like these animals. He is taking, and this is the nerd term I have on your outline, a self-maledictory oath. Now here's the question. Where's Abraham? You know where I'm going, Greg? Very good. Where's Abraham here? What's he doing? He's sleeping. Because well, what should happen here is that God goes through it, and then Abraham runs the gauntlet, and he says, "Look, if I don't have faith, if I don't believe, if I don't really trust you, cut me into. Let it happen though. He doesn't run the gauntlet. Why not? What's going on here? What we have is is the Lord himself saying, I'm not just taking my side of the the contract, I'm taking your side as well. If I don't do all that I have said, if I don't bless you, if I don't give you the land, if I don't give you uh, my presence, my very self, may I be cut in two. He is cursing himself. A self-maledictory oath. In case you need further kind of details, this is what's happening in the background. You can look up Jeremiah 34, 18, where God says, The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will make them like the calf they cut in two and pass between its parts. This is the way they did things. This is the way they did things back in the day. Now, what we have here is a glorious picture of um, of how, how God fulfills, how God fulfills his word. Um, Yeah, it's, it's just beautiful, and I'll, uh, I'll give us more details in a, in a few seconds on that. Any questions on that critical concept? God is taking the curse himself if he does not fulfill all the terms. This is why there can be no merit. Not from our side, because we're asleep, like Abraham. We're sleeping on the job. Yeah, God's God's presence, the fire, the fire and the smoke. Absolutely. Now, let's get to some more questions. I think we have time for this. Um, a little bit of time, at least. How is this fulfilled? Here's the great question: You have these three promises, people, place, presence. The great question in, in interpreting the Bible, probably the biggest question. We're going to wrestle, wrestle with it a lot of our class, is how do you put together the Old Testament and the New Testament? One of the biggest questions, if you're a Christian trying to read these words, how do you put it together? Old Testament New Testament. So here's the question. You have these promises. I've made the argument that these promises are not just for Abraham himself, but are actually reflective of something for us as well. So the question is, how are these promises fulfilled? Let's start here. Maybe an easy one. How is the promise of the land fulfilled in the Bible? How is the land promise fulfilled? Let me ask this question then. It's going to get us talking or something. Abraham has promised the land of Canaan. Is that given? Greg says yes. Everybody agree? Okay, Greg also says no. Eventually. Eventually. Yeah, so let's uh, let me ask you to turn. Uh, well, no, you don't need to turn. We don't have time to, to read through it. But um, Joshua 21 43 to 45. Look at at your ledger, you'll find that the Lord gave the land that he had promised to Israel. So it seems as though God's done it. God's fulfilled His land promise, right? He's given it to him. So that's it. This is how many folks read it. God's given the land, or maybe not fully, and so He needs to give it back to Israel. And so it's great that in 1948 we have a nation-state of Israel, and hopefully they can reclaim all the land of Canaan. Is that how we are to read these words? Are they simply applying to either... Old Testament Israel or the state of Israel established in the 20th century? Greg says no. Then what are they talking about? Because what I'm hearing from you is that, I think rightly, the key point to grasp is that there are two stages. There are two stages of fulfillment in the Bible, for each of these promises. There are two stages of fulfillment. The first stage is Joshua, is the conquest of the land, eventually, as Bob said. And yet, turn over to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. I'll read it. You know these words, likely. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And then verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The city that has foundations. Notice there, that the author of Hebrews does not say he was looking forward to the land. He does not say he was looking forward to the land of Canaan. He doesn't say the country, the nation of Israel. He says the city. Now that's weird because you know the promise of the land is bigger than one city. It's bigger than just Jerusalem that David had. It's a huge, I mean, Solomon got a lot of land. So clearly God not talking about that. Clearly he can't mean that. See here that the covenant of grace, the promises of the covenant of grace given to Abraham are not simply a one-stage Old Testament fulfillment. They are, uh, I think Calvin would talk about it, as having a larger fulfillment. That is, the, 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 the promises given in the Old Testament are uh, fulfilled in a small temporal sense and then in a much larger sense in the new covenant. And of course, the city we find in the book of Revelation is the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven as a bride prepared and adorned for her husband. Um, and as Peter says, we look forward. Peter applies, and, and the, the New Testament applies this covenant of grace promised with Abraham. It applies it to us. Peter says we look forward. We expect with hope. We look forward in heaven, to that imperishable, unfading inheritance. Now, I don't have time to go into the other promises. We may have to cover them next week. Um, but any questions on that? That's a vital point to grasp. That when God promises in the Old Testament, when He makes these promises, which again, are they, they smell like what Adam was called to do. He was called to achieve them. He failed it's important to see that God reaffirms them unilaterally. And He does so in preparatory fulfillment in the Old Covenant and then in full blush, full bloom in the New Covenant. And yet we don't even taste all the full bloom, do we? Not yet. We wait for it, even now, like Abraham. We live lives of faith. And we'll get to that more next time, I think. Uh, any questions so far? I haven't fully satisfied. Because I haven't talked about Abraham's faith, not really. I've whetted the appetite, but uh, we'll have to satisfy. Let let me conclude, I suppose, with this, if there aren't any questions. What do we learn from the covenant with Abraham? I have several things here, but I'll uh, only mention the first one. We'll cover the others next time. We learn that God is a God of promise. God is a God of promise. What do we take away from this this covenant of, of grace with Abraham? We live in a world of false promises. Every advertisement you see is a false promise. You know that, right? That's the reason why every car commercial I've ever seen always has the cool car or the cool truck, and it's always on a a highway or a road that's some like beautiful mountain or some beautiful forest. There are no other cars on that road. I've never been on that road before. They don't show you the car in rush hour traffic going downtown. They don't show you the car and somebody honking at you and say, get out of the way. They show you the car at it's magical, made up, imaginary, never like it experience because they want to whet your appetite and it never delivers. The car breaks down. The car depreciates the value. The moment you buy, you know, this moment you buy the car, the value depreciates. We live in a world of false promises. And what does God give to us? He promises a land. He promises a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Now you compare that to every commercial you see. Is that new Jerusalem promise good enough for you? I mean, you compare it to everything else that you're being sold every day. The algorithm today can tell you precisely what you, what you, what you want. I think the phones listen into to me. Who knows? They can tell what you want. But is that, is the promise that God gives anywhere close to that? Most of us think no. I mean, the temptation is is to doubt and say the promise that God gives of a place with Him, a a new Jerusalem place, that's nothing compared to the car on the road, the new car smell, right? That's the temptation. And yet, Paul says this in Galatians. Three sixteen. 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and the seed. The Scripture does not say to seeds, meaning many people, but in to your seed, singular, meaning one person who is Christ. Right? The promise of the great land, the promise of the great presence, the promise of the great people is based upon Jesus Christ. In other words, the only way you will see God's covenant of grace is beautiful is if you see it clothed in Christ, if you see Him coming down, Right? God's promises in Christ are yes and amen. They will not fail. They are certain. You have the Word made flesh. You have the Word who came and descended from His place, from His perfect home with the Father and the Spirit. He came down. He lost His place. I mean, you like that, right? Christ became homeless. He became a stranger. He lost His place in a, in a manner of speaking. And he was taken out back, behind the stands, outside the city. And he was shot. He was beaten. He was slaughtered like a sheep. He was silent before its shearers. And that is what you and I are called to trust in. Because what happens? This is what Greg alluded to. What happens with the, self, the self-maledictory oath that God takes? He has to go through with it. He actually has to go through with it. It's not like he's saying, oh, you know, if, if, if it doesn't happen... If I don't keep my word, I'm going to get hurt, but i do not going to keep it, so it won't matter. Because I'm God, and I know all things. No, that's not how God works. He knew well in advance what would happen, and yet he goes between the pieces while Abraham does nothing. He knew that he would have send his son to die. He knew he would have to fulfill the curse of the covenant. As Paul says, according to Deuteronomy, whoever is hung on a tree is cursed. This is the glory of your God. This is how far he, he is willing to go to deliver you. This is how far he's willing to go to deliver you. And therefore, if that's how far he's willing to go, how much more is the blessing of the promise? How beautiful must the new Jerusalem be, therefore? In a world of false promises, look at this one and this God. Although I have time for, um, Patrick, maybe you can close us in prayer. Words, acts, or effort, you will never fail, because you never fail. You are faithful for all that you intend, or the crazy that you have. fulfilled and will not fulfill your promise to be our God and to make us His people, if you have gone to a place for us and made will live. And your presence.